2014, we all heard this. The United States of America is changing its relationship with the people of Cuba. But Cubans heard something else. A closing door, an end to their special status, and the race was on. How a 90-mile journey by sea became a 3,000-mile trip by land. Find Radio Ambulante on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, is one of those characters that, I mean, you hear the word iconic all the time, but she literally is an icon of Halloween. I mean, she is like pumpkins or fake cobwebs or candy corn. Part of that is her personality. Cassandra Peterson, the woman who plays Elvira, is funny. She's weird. She's got great timing. But but also it's that look, the low-cut black dress, the crazy nails, the wig. How'd she throw it together? Well, basically, she and a friend of hers, an artist named Robert Redding, got a bunch of black fabric, some safety pins. They kind of put together an 80s goth look. And then when it came to the hair, well, Robert had her covered. And then he happened to be the world's biggest fan of Ronnie Spector from the Ronettes. And he said, I've got to do your hair. Do You have to have Ronnie Spector hair. And I was like, Ronnie Spector hair? What do you mean? He goes, it's called a knowledge bump. And that's what we'll do. So, <laughs> so he actually bought the wig, cut it, and styled it into Ronnie Spector hair. Prepare for a knowledge bump of your own, a spooky knowledge bump. It's a Halloween bullseye. Coming up, Bullseye's Halloween special. My guest Cassandra Peterson talks with me about what it's been like performing as Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, for over 35 years now. Through countless movies, live shows, TV appearances, pinball machines... She says she's still amazed at the reactions she gets from fans. I've had people even tell me that I have kept them from committing suicide, which I, I just, you know, I can't believe. I don't know how a character like that can influence someone so much, but I, I'm learning that I guess, it, you know, it can. It's weird. It's so strange to me. And how, here's a shocker, she was always kind of a weird kid. I got into horror collecting. I, for Christmas, I would ask for the Aurora model kits of Frankenstein and the mummy and, and Dracula because kids were always calling me a monster. So I thought, monster? <laughs> That's awesome. Plus, you'll hear from Andy Daly, one of my favorite funny people in the entire world, about the Halloween novelty song that changed his life. We'll have spooky movie recommendations from the gang at Hushacha, and I'll tell you about one of the most beautifully interpreted Halloween songs ever recorded. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. (laughs) It's the Bullseye Halloween special. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is named Cassandra Peterson, but you probably know her as Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, probably the most famous Halloween character since Dracula. For 36 years, Peterson has rocked a giant wig, a tailored black dress, and glossy black nail polish. She's appeared on countless television shows. She's had two movies, and since 1983, she's appeared live on stage at Knott's Berry Farm in Orange County, California, for a special nightly Halloween performance. This year is her last year on stage. When did it start? Back in 1981. Peterson was working with the Groundlings, and she got a gig hosting the spooky B-movie TV show Movie Macabre on a local L.A. TV station. In those late-night episodes sprawled out on her signature red velvet couch, wearing all black, Cassandra Peterson became Elvira. there. Is that you? (laughs) Come in, darling. I've been expecting you. Oh, come in. Don't be afraid. (laughs) I won't bite. 
And you're bound to have a good time. Or my name isn't Elvira. <laughs> That's hilarious. Cassandra Peterson, welcome to Bullseye. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you. Wow, I forgot about that voice. My voice has like, uh, since gone down about 12 octaves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in, in listening oh to that, God. the first thing that I wondered was, you know, you've been doing this character. That's 1981. Yeah. So you've been doing this character for 35 years. Um, what What is different about Elvira in 2017? Hmm. Well, my voice is lower, like I said. Um, so are a lot of other parts of me. Uh, well, we won't go there. Uh, let's see. My hair is maybe much higher than it was. I started out with very flat hair. It was a bouffant, but it was so low. When I look at old pictures of me, I'm always shocked. I can kind of tell what year it is by how high my hair was. Uh, that's kind of the only difference. I like to imagine that you're just you're adding on to it like the Winchester Mystery House or something. <laughs> it's just I each did year for a new a while. layer gets added. I did do that for a while. My hair got so damn high in the 90s that it, I looked like Marge Simpson. It started looking ridiculous. I had to I had to tone it down. And then we found a happy happy middle ground. Not too flat, not too high, just right. And I've sort of stuck with that uh, from then on. The character kind of came out of something that you were doing at the Groundlings in the late 70s and early 80s. But it wasn't like a literal, you know, translation of something you were doing at the Groundlings. Where did, where did it come from? Right. Uh, not like Pee Wee, who actually developed his character there. I had a dopey valley girl kind of character that I was using at the time in a couple of sketches. And she was kind of a bimbo, kind of a smartass, kind of a valley girl. And... uh when I heard about this interview for a job, which were, as groundlings, always looking for jobs, I decided I'd kind of go with that character, use the valley girl thing and and the smart alecky talk. And uh, I didn't know if it would work or not, but the director liked it. So, I mean, why wasn't it just know. like, what led you to do that and not uh, Bella Lugosi voice or whatever? Well, that like it's me, vampire. That is what they kind of were looking for, and they had a script that was an old vampire script, and really the the first lines in it were, "Come in, darling, drink a glass of blood," you know, and uh, I have to say the script was so kind of bad. <laughs> you know, it probably played well and awesome in 1951, but it was uh, really not that funny. It had some jokes in it. So being an improv person, I decided to just improvise. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like I was dying to get this job, really, it, like paid $300 a week and it was on local TV. And it wasn't like, oh, my God, my big break. Uh, so I wasn't that thrilled about the whole thing. So I just started improvising and kind of did the character that I was using at that moment in The Groundlings. And uh, the weird thing about that was that it really didn't go with horror movies at all. I mean, it was so different from that. But they liked it. They liked the humor. Then, they, then I had to come up with a costume. So when they said come up with a costume, <laughs> like, did they just uh... – give you $100 and send you to <laughs> Fredericks of Hollywood or whatever? Like, <laughs> No, not exactly. They they said you've got to come up with a spooky-looking outfit because you're hosting horror movies after all. And I said, that's awesome because I love horror movies. Um, what I did first was go to my best friend at the time who was a wonderful artist. And I sat down with him and I said, we've got to come up with a cool look, you know, that's spooky and, and you know, blah, blah. So we talked about it, and we both decided we, we were in love with Sharon Tate's character in The Fearless Vampire Killers. And we were like, let's go that way. I'll have long, curly red hair and, and uh, uh, kind of a sheer, diaphanous gown that's tattered and kind of a dead girl makeup, you know, white lips and big black circles around the eyes. And So that's what he drew up. I have that picture still. I just put it in my book that came out recently. Um, and they hated it. They just took one look at it and said, "No, are you kidding? You have to have all black. You have to you have to have black hair, black black clothes." It was like, "Oh God, so typical," you know. We're like, "Oh, what are we gonna do to update that look so I don't look like I'm ripping off either of them?" But when your parameters are all black with black hair, what do you do? You know, and you're supposed to be some kind of vampire or something. 
So my friend Robert and I came up with ideas to make it look kind of hip and 80s, kind of punk, you know. There was no goth. We had, or we had never heard of goth movement at that time. If there was, I, it may have been over in England, but I'd never heard of it. So we tried to do a little, you know, heavy metal, little punk stuff here and there, jagged edges, some safety pins, some bracelet, leather bracelets with studs on them. And, um, and then he happened to be the world's biggest fan of Ronnie Spector from the Ronettes. And he said, I've got to do your hairdo. You're, you have to have Ronnie Spector hair. And I was like, Ronnie Spector hair? What do you mean? He goes, it's called a knowledge bump. And that's what we'll do. So, <laughs> so he actually bought the wig, cut it, and styled it into Ronnie Spector hair. When you started doing it, did you feel like, huh, this works? No, I didn't feel that way right away. I felt like an idiot. I, <laughs> I felt like this is ridiculous. This is not that funny. When we started out, this was awesome. We started out, instead of laying on my red sofa, that's kind of become my signature sofa, I was standing under a street light. So it kind of felt like I was a vampire hooker or something. I don't know. It was odd. It wasn't uh, chased like the later iterations of Elvira. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Later she got so, yeah, exactly, chased. But uh, no, it was, I didn't think it was working. I thought it was ridiculous. And the way I knew it was working is that a few weeks into it, I got called by The Tonight Show to come on the Johnny Carson show with, you know, with Johnny Carson. I was like, oh my God, why? What, what, why? What's going on here? I feel like what a bizarre big break. Like to get the call from The Tonight Show. Yeah. And you're like, great, I've been I've been a showgirl. I've been a toured with a band. I've like I've been with the Groundlings for five years. I've been, I've been in movies. I've been, you know, all these things that you had done. And you're like, yes, uh, we would like you to wear the local television dress. Um Here's a couple of things though that are very odd. When I look back and I think about it, it did come from just out of the blue. I was an actress, I was a comedian looking for work. But when I think about things from my childhood, number one, my mom ran a costume shop, my mom and my aunt. So I dressed up in wacky costumes all the time and really awesome costumes because they would sew me whatever happened to be hot at the time, like uh, I Dream of Genie costume or, or uh, uh, Ginger from Gilligan's Island. So they would make those costumes for me and I'd go out. And as young as second grade, I won costume contest and won a $100 bond dressed as Miss Kitty from Gunsmoke, you know, barroom girl. Here I was with garter belt, uh, you know, high and heels. You, you actually, oh, my God. There's a picture of you in the book that you mentioned, your coffee table book that came out last year. Yeah, that's the weirdest part. Like a five or six-year-old dressed as, what's it called, the Queen of Halloween or something like that? Yes. I asked my mom to make me a costume, my first Halloween costume when we lived in Kansas on a farm. And I guess we were so poor she couldn't afford fabric because she made it out of crepe paper. So she makes this black and uh, orange costume for me with a crown and a scepter because she asked me what I wanted to go as for Halloween. And I said, I want to be the queen of Halloween. So, I mean, really? That's pretty odd, right? Was the rest of your family life as a kid secure or happy? Or... Uh, it was pretty crazy. <laughs> it was, uh, well, I had been burned when I was about almost two years old. So I was in and out of hospitals having surgery a lot. I, I pulled a giant kettle of boiling water over on me when I was uh, about two out on the farm and had— Kettle of Easter egg water, right? Easter boiling boiling water that my mom was making Easter eggs. Uh, Which explains your lifelong antipathy towards Easter and <laughs> love of Halloween. Yes, I hate Easter and Christmas. <laughs> uh, no, I—yeah, I got burned. And uh, that was one of the reasons I think we have eventually ended up moving— even to uh, Manhattan so that we could be closer to the hospital in Kansas City. But uh, so I had a lot of surgery and I had kind of an odd life. I, uh, when I went to school, I, my burns were very, very visible on my, on my neck and my shoulders. I got made fun of by kids constantly. Um, so I really, really went inward, became very quiet, very shy, very strange. And uh, so, I don't know. It led me to become kind of a freak back then. I, th I think I I got into horror collecting. I I think it was was it either Famous Monsters, a, 
I think, of Filmland that I got hold of a comic uh, or a magazine. And then for Christmas, I would ask for the Aurora model kits of Frankenstein and the mummy and, and Dracula because kids were always calling me a monster. So I thought, monster? <laughs> That's awesome. So I don't know. I, had, I, I was not a very social kid or teenager, that's for sure. I feel like Famous Monsters of Filmland is one of the original geek texts. It is. There was only a few things that you could be a geek of <laughs> at the time. It was before geek culture as we know it had been created. I mean, there's no Dungeons and Dragons or whatever, right? Nothing, nothing. But you could go to a newsstand and get this movie monster magazine and it was like the you know, it was the it was the cultural exchange for geekdom, if, if, even if you didn't know another kid who was into it at your school or whatever. And I didn't, which was so weird. And, and girls doing that at the time, I think, was especially bizarre. But I had two things that I, I was really into when I was really young, uh, and that was the, like, famous monsters and, and collecting the monster models and all that. And then Superman. Oh, I was really into Superman. And I collected all those comics. My uncle owned a drugstore, and I got to go to the drugstore, and there'd be a rack, you know, of comic books that spins around. And I got to sit there and read all the comic books. I didn't even have to buy them because he'd let me read them if I put them back and didn't mess them up. So uh, I was really into those two things when I was a, a kid. And there were no other... I couldn't find friends who were into that, too, really. There were a few boys who were into the Superman comic books, but nobody that was into the horror thing. You actually graduated from high school and went to Las Vegas to be a Las Vegas showgirl. <laughs> I did. That strikes me as like the most astonishing amount of chutzpah for a 17-year-old <laughs> to... Yeah, I don't know what the heck. Um, I think it was really due to my art teacher who I had, this this guy named Mr. Samuelson. And he was actually retired, but he came back. He was an older man, and he came back to teach uh, art at my high school. And I remember after I watched Viva Las Vegas with Elvis and Ann-Margaret going, you know, oh, that's what I want to do, go to Vegas and be a showgirl. My parents and my relatives looked at me like I was an idiot. I mean, it really did. They said, you are not tall enough. You are not attractive enough. You're not thin enough. Where'd you get this ridiculous idea? You could never do this. And he said, when I, he said to me, what do you want to be when you get out of high school? I said, a showgirl in Las Vegas. And he said, well, go do it. And I said, what do you mean do it? You just, just go do it. I think he invented the Nike slogan. <laughs> just do it. He was ahead of his time. And I admired him so much and believed in him so much that I, I went, okay. But I did have a, a coincidental thing happened. I, I, that summer before my senior year, I went to or during the uh, spring break actually of my senior year, my parents took myself and my two sisters on a vacation to California, and we stopped in Vegas. And I begged my parents to take me in to see one of the shows because I was so obsessed with them. And I put on a little wiglet and I put on my Frederick's push-up bra. And I, I had to look sophisticated, you know, because I had to go into a showroom and lie to them about my age. So I had a fake ID that said I was 21. So that was awesome. Uh, so going with my parents and the, uh, the, the maitre d' said, are you a showgirl in Las Vegas? Of course, I looked like one. I had like three pairs of eyelashes on and <laughs> you know, cleavage. And a, like a shark's teeth. Wig. Yeah, yeah. So... I said, uh, no, no, I'm not. Uh, you know, I just tried to get away as quickly as I could. Next thing I know, we're sitting at the table with my mom and dad. I'm drinking champagne. And uh, this woman named Fluff, I'll never forget her name, Fluff, came out. And she was the dance captain, and she asked if I would like to go backstage. They were hiring showgirls for a new show that was coming out, and would I like to audition? And I, I, was, I, I was just... Well, I started crying then because I said, no, I'm, I'm underage. I can't. And they said, well, don't worry. We, I think we could still work that out. And they did. They got me a contract. My parents had to sign off on it, get a lawyer. I couldn't come in the hotel. I had to just come in the back door and do the show, prancing around in just a G-string with a lot of feathers. And my parents certainly did not want me to do it. It took me three months of fighting, threatening, crying, screaming, running away to finally allow them to sign the contract. I mean, they finally just give it, gave in because they were like, what are we going to do? She's going to disappear. I, I really made their life a living hell, I'm sure. 
Well, let's listen to Elvira. And my guest, Cassandra Peterson, uh, has been Elvira the last 35 years or so. Um, This is another clip from Movie Macabre, the television program that made her famous, uh, got her on The Tonight Show in the early 1980s. Um, They showed on the show uh, terrible, often, uh, monster movies and horror movies. Uh, Elvira's role on the show was to be entertaining enough that the movies were watchable. And uh, this is Elvira's thoughts on the 1978 international smash hit, Legacy of Blood. Big surprise finish. How they really came up with a swell twist. Sure had me guessing. Sure. I bet when this one uh, played in the movie houses, they used the old cliche, absolutely, positively, nobody will be admitted into this theater during the final 10 minutes of this motion picture. Unless, of course, you have $3.50 in your pocket. And then we just might reconsider. What a dumb movie. I'd call it an insult to your intelligence if you had the intelligence to insult. I mean, I get paid for watching this garbage, but what's your excuse? <laughs> oh, my God. I remember now that, that, that so, it sounds so old and so horrifying. Um, I remember one other joke from that, and it was Legacy of Blood. And I, I said, you know what a legacy is, right? This is my legacy, and this is my other legacy. <laughs> oh, my God. That's how bad the jokes were. Oh, God. <laughs> It was Shecky Green time. That's, uh, that's far below Shecky Green. I hate to tell <laughs> oh, thank you. you. <laughs> yeah, maybe you're right. <laughs> that's sort of an aspiring Shecky Green situation. Sorry. <laughs> it got better over the years, I think. I don't know. Well, I'm not sure. but When you were a showgirl, did you think that it was what you wanted it to be? Uh, no, it wasn't what I wanted to be at all. It was a really hard job. We did three shows a night. Uh, you had to get there early. I had to have body makeup put on head to toe. Because of your burns? Because of my burns. And uh, so I had to come in really early. I had to be there all night. You had three shows with this long break in between where you just sat around doing nothing. Everybody else was drinking and they'd go out to the bar and gamble and stuff. Not me. I'd sat in there staring at myself. Uh, you wore tons of makeup. You had all these rules. You had to smile all the time. You had to wear red lipstick. Uh, I was always on the borderline of getting kicked out for um, weight gain. If you went five pounds over your your weight, you'd get a citation. And then if you got two citations, you were out. Um, but it was hard work. It was hard work and it was boring. All that, you kind of doing the very same moves every single night on the stage. You just went off into like thinking about what you're going to have for dinner after, what you needed to buy at the store. And uh, by the time you got out at night, it was four in the morning. Things were really kind of winding down. You went home, you slept all day, got up again when it was almost dark, six or seven, and did it over again. And it was every single night. It was seven nights a week. There were no days off. It was ridiculous. We'll continue my conversation with Elvira after a quick break. Plus, Andy Daly and film critics Alonso Duralde and April Wolf from our show, Who Shot Ya? Turn the dial at your peril. My instruction said to do that in a Dracula voice, so... Hope you enjoyed my loss of dignity. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from ZipRecruiter, the hiring site that offers a smarter way to find quality candidates fast. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 top job boards with one click. Then their smart technology notifies the most qualified candidates to apply. In fact, 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. It's the Bullseye Halloween special. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Cassandra Peterson. For 36 years, she's performed as Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. What was it like to go from being a... you know, a teen very uncomfortable with your body on a f- literal farm in Kansas. Yep. Directly to the demands of like the purest adult sexuality that ex- <laughs> like the most intense like 
a G-string and feathers on stage in Las Vegas in a hotel suite with Tom Jones. Yeah. Like these kinds <laughs> of things that are like the most grown-up stuff, you know. Well, it was scary. And uh, but I I was pretty tough. I was pretty damn tough like I mentioned before. Uh, I don't know why. I think I took after my dad who was this Wow, my dad was like this tattooed I will kick your ass if you even look at me cross-eyed kind of guy. And you did not mess with my dad. <laughs> tattoos back when nobody had tattoos. My dad was covered with them, and he was didn't take any crap from anybody. I think I must have gotten that from my dad. And I was sort of like that. But, you know, in the wake of the whole Harvey Weinstein thing, I've been thinking over the past how many times I, wow, barely escaped with my you know, life practically, the situations I would get myself into were just frightening. And well, I'd get, I'd get yourself into. I mean, your your work. It was your job to do. You know, to be an entertainer, you have to go to auditions. You have to go and network with people. Like it's not a matter of it being your responsibility. It was a poisonous world. It really was, and I, I honestly, at the time, I didn't understand. Uh, all the finer points that I'm now really, you know, as I got older, do understand. But casting couch and all that, boy, was that that was like every damn job you went to. It was, and I was always going out for roles of like the hooker, the showgirl, the the stripper. You know, that was all the parts I'd always show up for. So. The times I found myself in an office, like at night, with a guy standing up from behind his desk with no pants on, or whatever, it was just like unbelievable. So many times when I turned 30 and I went to get an agent who told me, 30 years old, get out of here, go back to Kansas, you're washed up, you throw. I mean, literally like that. Uh, I really thought, well, this is it. I'm 30. I'm still playing sexy. I'm not going to get any parts. This is, this is over. And that, that interview with that guy came one week exactly before I got the Elvira part. So I'm so glad he didn't become my agent or I would be paying, you know, I would have been paying him like uh, 10% or 15% or whatever it was back then. You own Elvira, right? I do. Yeah. That's uh, a big deal. <clears throat> it's a very big deal. To own the licensing of any character is a very big deal because I don't think they're – Pee Wee is one of the only people – who I call him Pee Wee and he calls me Elvira. It's so weird. That's what we've always called each other. It's just, you know, it's one of those, I don't know, you have to be one to. Despite having know known one. each other for five years before those characters existed. Yeah, I know. We still, I'm always like, hey, Pee Wee, are we? Elvira. If you're wondering, Charo also calls him Pee Wee. <laughs> well, she's almost in that. She's yeah. almost in our club. It's a very exclusive club. Charo is only basically that, only without a government name. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there are a few people. There's like maybe, I don't know, Alice Cooper, maybe Gene Simmons, who can kind of have made their living off of this character that they invented and they own the rights to. And uh, I don't know any other people that do that, but it's a... Uh, it's fantastic if you can do it. It's it's funny you don't make as much money as you could by selling it out, maybe. But in the long run, you do make more money and you have more control, much more control. So I am glad that I hung on to that name. It's paying off bigger as the the you know older I get and the and the uh, longer it's been around. I mean, we talked about coffee table book. We have. Uh, Pinball machines, right? Yeah. What else new, are we looking at? I have at? a new one coming out again. Uh, There's the annual show at, at Knott's Berry Farm when it's transformed into Knott's Scary Farm. Right. With slot machines. I, slot machines are awesome, I tell you. I have five video games, and, and then uh, I've done, I think, four slot machines. I have another one coming up. Uh, those are awesome. I have a new line of clothing through Pinup Girl Clothing. I have a new line of jewelry. All kind of spooky goth jewelry from uh, Sweet Romance. I, ha I, I just Funko toys are very big right now. I have a whole new line of action figures coming up. Uh, oh my gosh, I could go on forever. Is merchandising the living hell out of this thing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of an amazing thing uh, to create something that has such an indelible impact. Um, it, you must also sometimes feel like subsumed by the the hugeness of this character that you played. Like, wow. 
how is it possible that this this weird version of me is such a huge force in the world and I am I am but a human being? I do feel that way once in a while. I'm going, when did this take – when did it get on a train and just start going? And I, I didn't know. You know, it just uh, – I'm over here and she's over there. I, I don't know. It was odd. People were always saying earlier on – well, I was always feeling I should do something else. People were saying – don't you get bored doing this Elvira character all the time? It's always Elvira. What you know? And I was thinking, yeah, I should go out and expand myself and do some other TV shows and some other things as different characters. And I very quickly found out that you know I got hired for a pilot. I went in to do the pilot. It was during October. Killed my Halloween season. I got paid scale. The pilot didn't go. It ruined a whole Halloween for me. I made about a tenth of what I would have been making that month. And I went, what the hell am I doing? I mean, I'm not Bill Shatner trying to get away from Star Trek for the rest of my life, you know. Why not just jump on this character and write it? I mean, you like it, right? I love the character. I love the character, actually. Uh, um, it gets a little tiresome during Halloween right now, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I you were telling much. me you, mm. yeah, this is the time of year when you sleep four hours a night. I really do. I'm so messed up. I don't know if it's day or night because in addition to doing two shows a night – I do 7 a.m. drive time radio interviews, and I do TV shows for just one, did one for the Sci Fi Channel. I do this and that uh, all day long, in addition to doing the two shows at night, which really kicked my butt. Um, and these are, these are full production shows. You're singing and big. dancing in these shows, in addition yeah. to, you know, this isn't just you coming on saying a couple of one liners and walking off stage while someone else does something. No, I wish I could be share where I just stand in one spot and sing, you know, and, and kind of don't move. That's awesome. People are going, well, she's 71 and she still does a show. And I go, she flies in on a thing. She's just standing. They drop her down. She stands. I love Cher. Don't Solomon get me wrong. I Solomon Burke this thing. Solomon Burke <laughs> just performed from a throne. You've yeah. got that red sofa. Just so have them bring you in on the sofa, sit you down at the back, and have those <laughs> half-naked dudes dance. <laughs> that is a good idea. Let me tell you, if I do any more live stuff, it will be like that because I have spent this year dancing. I mean, I was a former dancer, so I still like to dance. I still like to do it, but I don't dance all year. Then I dance like crazy for a month, and I'm not dancing that big, but just enough to end up with cortisone shots in my shoulder, cortisone shot in my foot, at the chiropractor every single day, bruises from head to toe. I, I'm a mess. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Your uh, Elvira shtick fits so squarely with this original form of fandom, right? This original geekery, the one that you had when you were a kid. Famous movie monsters and Frankenstein uh, model kits. And you've been part of that world since you started doing Elvira, you know, as a, as a performer, as a celebrity. Mm -hmm. And it must be amazing to hear the stories from people who tell you what this supremely silly character means to them. It really is weird, the stories I hear. And now I'm kind of used to it. But starting several years ago, people telling me how my character changed their life. And I'm going, how the hell did I do that? You know, but they said gave them strength, gave them courage, gave them power, kind of stand up to bullies, stand up to you know, the hypocrisy that was kind of happening around them, uh, showing them that women can be sexy and strong at the same time. because Not just because you're sexy, you're a bimbo, you're an idiot. But you can be strong and you can be sexy and you can use your assets for to make you more powerful. It's really crazy. It's how many people says that, say, say that. Um, I've had people even tell me that I have kept them from committing suicide. Which I, I just, you know, I can't believe. Uh, but I've had people tell me that many, many times. Uh, I don't know how a character like that can influence someone so much. But I, I'm learning that I guess, it, you know, it can. It's weird. It's so strange to me. But I'm happy for it. And it's, it makes it the thing about Elvira that I like the best. That I've actually changed some people's lives for the better. And in fact possibly saved some lives, for crying out loud. Uh, you you got to be pretty happy about that. 
Cassandra, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. What a, what a great joy to get to meet you. Thanks. This was fun talking like this. <laughs> Cassandra Peterson, everybody. If you live in the Los Angeles area, there is still time to see her live as Elvira at Knott's Berry Farm, which this time of year, I am told, is Knott's Scary Farm. Go to the Bullseye page on MaximumFun.org for tickets and information. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every now and then, we find a guest with a story about a song they love. We call it The Song That Changed My Life. And this week, boy, have we got a treat for you. I went on Twitter and asked, what comedian loves the Monster Mash the most? And it turns out, I kind of knew this going in, all comedians love the Monster Mash. I don't know why that is, but the universal love for the Monster Mash is overwhelming. One particularly vociferous response I got was from the brilliant Andy Daly. Andy Daly, of course, a brilliant comedian and actor. In my opinion, one of the funniest people in the world. You've seen him on Mad TV. He's bounded down. He plays the terrible doctor on Silicon Valley. And for three years, he starred on the Comedy Central show Review. He played a critic willing to review pretty much anything that life has to offer, even something as simple as eating pancakes. A bunch of pancakes. I have now eaten 10 pancakes, and on the bright side, I can see the light at the end of this disgusting tunnel, but it has now been 45 minutes since I started eating, and the pancakes are no longer hot. These aren't food. So, now, with a special super spooky edition of the song that changed my life, we present to you the great, the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, Andy Daly. Hi, I'm Andy Daly, and I would like to speak with you about the Monster Mash, which is a song that changed my life. It's hard to think about the first time I heard the Monster Mash because I feel that the Monster Mash is one of those songs that has always been with us. You know, I I think it's a song uh, that I was born knowing, like the national anthem. It's just it's just it's in your bloodstream. It's a part of the culture. Uh, I do know that the first time I paid a lot of attention to the Monster Mash was when I was in a band uh, in high school and we were hired to play a Halloween party. And the very first thought that we all had is, well, we got to learn the Monster Mash. We're going to play a Halloween party. We got to know that song. And so uh, I really drilled down on it. I played drums, and it's a great drum part. If you're not going to start it off with chains on the ground and blowing bubbles in a straw, which you shouldn't do if you're playing a party, because that's just people don't know what's happening, uh, it starts off with a fill and then a drum groove. Boom. And uh, if you're playing a Halloween party, people should know right away. Oh, oh, it's the Monster Mash time. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight. For my monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly to my... Well, we're hearing a guy doing his best Boris Karloff impression, that's for sure. And we're hearing a very basic song musically. I mean, they they knew what they were doing. They were like, we are not uh, attracting too much attention to any of the musical aspects of this song. It is all about the Karloff, and it is all about the words. The vampire's feast. The ghouls all came from their humble abode to get a jolt from my electro. Uh, nobody in our band could do a uh, a real Boris Karloff impression, but our, our bassist is the one. It fell to him, and I I couldn't really hear. I was behind the drums, and you know we didn't have monitors or anything, but the audience seemed to be enjoying it. Having fun. The party had just begun. I've always been very impressed that this guy, in the middle of doing this Boris Karloff impression throughout the song, suddenly, and without warning, jumps into a, a, a Dracula impression, a Bela Lugosi impression. That's when uh, Dracula asks the question, Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the match. It's 
I'll tell you this. About five years ago, when my daughter was five years old, uh, it was around Halloween time, and I made a Pandora playlist. You know how, if you know how Pandora works, you can type in an artist or a song or a type of song. And I typed in Monster Mash, and it became this playlist of Halloween novelty songs from the 50s and 60s, of which there are a surprising number. There were quite a few of them. You've got uh, Monsters Holiday, Teenage Brain Surgeon, uh, (laughs) the Monster Swim, which, by the way, the same people who brought us the Monster Mash also brought us a song called the Monster Swim, which is equally fantastic. It's a poolside smash. It's bigger than the mash. I think that this is true, that Halloween and Christmas are the only two holidays that have songs written about them, unless you kind of count Peter Cottontail for Easter, but not really. That's that's a stretch. And if I had to pick between the two, I would take the Halloween songs anytime over all of the Christmas songs. I am delighted to hear Halloween novelty songs at Halloween time. I look forward to this time of year that I can play them all the time. Whereas my attitude toward Christmas music is a little more like, here we go. The coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal group, the Crypt Kicker Five. If I were to try to make the case to somebody who tells me, I don't want to hear the Monster Mash, I'm not interested in the Monster Mash, I'm sick of the Monster Mash, I would say, that's crazy, because the Monster Mash is full of so many characters that you are free to imagine and imagine them outside of this song. Like, what's up with the Crypt Kicker 5? What other kind of gigs do they play? What's up with the Coffin Bangers? I want to know more about the Coffin Bangers. What do you mean the zombies are having fun? What does that look like? When Dracula says, whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? And then the answer is, it's now the mash. I'm really curious about that. That opens up a whole, what do you mean? How did the Transylvania twist become the mash? This song is chock full of ideas and imagery and characters. And then, of course, it ends with an invitation for us, the living, to also enjoy the monster mash, which is a beautiful way for this song to end. It tells a story, and uh, and it's an invitation to dance. This song has everything. <laughs> You'll catch on in a flash. Then you can mash. Then you can monster mash. Andy Daly with the song that changed his life, The Monster Mash, by Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crypt Kickers. If you haven't seen Andy Daly in review, please go check it out. He'll also be appearing early next year on the Netflix series The Who Was Show. Keep an eye out for that. I'm also going to throw in a plug for my favorite Andy Daly thing. A few years ago, he recorded an album called Nine Sweaters. It's him doing nine character monologues, and it might be the funniest comedy album in existence. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Go to Amazon or whatever and download it. It's amazing. Now, more of the Bullseye Halloween special. When we come back from the break, film critics April Wolf and Alonso Duralde of the podcast Who Shot Ya? try to convince me, a person who is too scared to watch Man on Wire, because of the heights, you see, is the problem, to watch a Halloween movie. A Halloween movie that isn't the surefire classic Ernest Scared Stupid. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, I want to recommend another NPR podcast to you, Embedded, hosted by Kelly McEvers. Right now, they're digging into the business records of the president and some of the people closest to him. Hear what one California golf course, one Manhattan skyscraper, no, not Trump Tower, and one political documentary that only opened in 15 theaters can teach us about one of the most politically powerful people in the world today. Find Embedded now in the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're doing a special Halloween episode for all you boys and ghouls out there. Gee whiz. I don't write this stuff, folks. Now, look, I don't don't know how to say this. I, I know that every October, people like to watch super scary classic horror movies at home. They go see all the new horror movies in theaters. And the truth is, I do not like horror movies. I do not like being scared. My producer, Kevin, sitting five feet from me right now, also does not like being scared. 
And because this is NPR, the official radio network of scared dorks, I'm willing to bet that you can relate to, right? Scary stuff is too scary. But there's more to the Halloween spirit than just getting scared. And movies can help you with that. What's Thanksgiving without planes, trains, and automobiles? Christmas without Charlie Brown? The 4th of July without, I guess, bored on the 4th of July? It's probably a bad example. Anyway, here to talk about Halloween movies spooky and ooky are two resident film experts here at Maximum Fun. They're panelists from the new Max Fun movie podcast, Who Shot Ya? April Wolf is a film critic who's written for L.A. Weekly, The Atlantic, NPR, Vice, and a bunch more. She works at L.A. Weekly. She's joined by Alonso Duralde. He's the film critic for The Wrap. April, Alonso, thank you so much for joining me on Bullseye. Always a joy to see you guys. Our pleasure. Thank so, you. I, I, here's the first thing. We're talking about Halloween, but I want to make it clear. I'm very afraid to watch scary movies. I, I feel you. I'm I, I'm oh, I'm a God. I'm a total wuss too. It <laughs> it is a thing now where not just my husband but other critics we know like to sit near me at horror movies that I have to review because I'm the lowest bar of scared. And so watching me is part of the show. Whereas April is like she is a tough <laughs> mamma jam over there. April, it's like you borderline your thing. I, I think it is I, it is my thing. I think it's probably been my thing since I was three years old. So is that common among film critics? How many film critics do you meet who love horror movies? Um, I think that more recently it's become more of a thing. You have some younger film critics who are you know kind of getting reared and blogging, and they have these fringe interests. But I don't think that that was the norm before. Um, Kenneth Turan even wrote something today about uh, how he doesn't review them, and he just doesn't want to. And, and and I totally respect his decision. I have a very different opinion, obviously, but it's I, I would say it's becoming more in vogue. Yeah, genre got a lot more legitimacy, I think, with the sort of internet generation of film critics. And even before that, like the zine era of film critics, where they were sort of unapologetically all in for that. And in fact, maybe even started with horror movies and then started branching out to the rest of it. Whereas I think a lot of your traditional critics are more involved in the canon and, you know, they'll they'll talk about horror in terms of like, oh, yes, Eyes Without a Face or, you know, the or Nosferatu or the even the universal horror uh, films. But but, yeah, I'd say now your young Internet folks were weaned on Wes Craven and Toby Hooper and those guys. That's true. And you also have the women who are coming in who have a brand new take on all of these things that I think a lot of people weren't even thinking about. You, April, were almost literally weaned on horror movies, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was. I know. I think I'm probably a weirdo. Yes. No, it's very weird. <laughs> <laughs> I always make this joke that everyone I know saw Back to the Future when they were kids, and I was watching Sleepaway Camp. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I didn't see Back to the Future until this this past year, and yes, that's my admission as a as a film critic that it took me quite a long time. But I was like, I don't know. There's some mixed messages for women in that film, you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I just have a different outlook on. Whereas things, I, I, think. I, I didn't see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre until I was in my 30s. Uh, yeah, because I was just a big <laughs> chicken, and I had lived in Texas, and I still wouldn't watch it. <laughs> my wife went to a children's birthday party as a kid, and I'm talking about. I believe it was her eighth or it was an eighth or ninth birthday party where the parents showed The Shining. Oh! And she was sincerely traumatized by it and (laughs) has been ever since. I don't think she has watched a horror film since then. I just got giddy thinking about that. I know that if I had children that I wouldn't be, like, I would not be allowed to do that now. I'm sure that someone would just call the cops, but I'm like, what a cool thing to introduce your children to. April at eight would have forced a friend to go with her to dress as the twins from The Shining. Yeah. So now that we have established a baseline uh, for tolerance of scariness, April, in deference to the fact that it is actually the Halloween season... It is. What is a recommendable, genuinely scary film for Halloween? See, that's a hard one because, uh, I mean, I don't often get scared by horror films. But there are ones that still really creep me out. And I still think that Don't Look Now 
is a classic for a reason. And I think that that one is, it's fantastic performances. And it's also genuinely creepy because it's all set in Venice. And you have, you know, all these twisty, turny pathways and some, you know, person in like a red jacket, you know, being chased and it's it's genuinely creepy and there's some religious stuff in there too if you're into that you know what's the premise of the movie god donald sutherland <laughs> um <laughs> he's in uh venice he's working and um there's like a, a child who dies i believe and um he keeps seeing this um this uh this person who he thinks might be his child in his child's jacket. And at the same time, there's uh, news about this kind of killer going around Venice. So you have all this um, atmosphere of just uh, death uh, and, you know, very Edgar Allan Poe, I would say. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. Come on. Are there horror movies that I could watch and enjoy as a person who is afraid of horror movies? I'm not like, look, it's not pathological or anything, my avoidance of horror movies. Yes. I, I would say there are some old school films that are kind of creepy and atmospheric but aren't going to give you necessarily nightmares. Like the original Cat People, for instance. Yes. It's very shadowy and very – there's a lot of implication involved, but it still sets this tone and it's very kind of haunting and creepy. And then, you know, my suggestion for, like, Halloween movie for people who don't really like horror movies is uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. (laughs) Because that way you get Dracula and the Wolfman and Frankenstein. But it's an Abbott and Costello movie. So, you know, the stakes are never that bad. And you're never going to be, like, too hiding your face in your hands. Listen, you're making enough noise to wake up the dead. I don't have to wake him up. He's up. I saw a hand. You saw a head. Uh Where? Right over there. Let me see it. Where is it? I saw a hand there. You don't know what you're talking about. You're all excited reading this legend. Now listen. Listen, Wilbur. I know there's no such a person as Dracula. You know there's no such a person as Dracula. But does Dracula know it? Are there things that are adjacent to the kind of horror themes that we're talking about that that people could look at in uh, Thanksgiving time and enjoy that aren't Simply, I mean, Charlie Brown and uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm. Mm. I mean, what are your thoughts about Have you seen Trick or Treat? Trick or Treat, I think, was fun. It's a, it's like a glossy um, anthology series. There's tons of great horror anthologies coming out right now. Um, yeah, tr- Trick or Treat is Michael Doherty's film, and it's it, it's more about the idea of Halloween than necessarily being a horror film. I mean, there are some scares in it, but if you want a movie that really kind of celebrates the way we celebrate Halloween in this country and the autumnalness of it and that kind of thing, that might be a good one to start with. And, you know, I think that John Carpenter's Halloween is I mean it's it's scary but it's scary in a way that has been so often copied that it's kind of in our collective DNA now that you're kind of ready for it because even if you haven't seen Halloween you've probably seen Halloween just from all the people who've been aping it over the years it's fun to um, kind of dissect the aesthetics of it. Once you're once you're past the scares, it's great to just see what these filmmakers are doing because horror is a place where filmmakers can experiment. And once you can get past the scares, you get some really amazing cinematography and effects and performances mm. and storytelling. Um, and that's one of my favorite parts. There are also some interesting movies about the making of horror movies that you know might be enough of a remove that make mm. it more palatable. So you've got uh, Hitchcock from a couple years ago, which is based on Stephen Rebello's book, Albert Hitchcock and the Making of Psycho. There's uh, what's the one about the making of Nosferatu with, Will- with Willem Dafoe and John I was, Malkovich? I don't, I was Shadow of the Vampire. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, there you can always you can always step back a bit. And there are a lot of interesting documentaries about 
uh, about like certain horror series. Like uh, there's one called Never Sleep Again about the Nightmare on Elm Street films that is quite lengthy but really goes into a lot of detail. I did a screening for Outfest once of the very gay Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and the guys who made that film came in and showed some clips. Uh, and there's another long one I think called Crystal Lake Memories all about the Jason, uh, the Friday the 13th movies. Oh, see, I haven't seen that last one. Oh, it's Ooh. on my list now. There we go. Tell me what's gay about uh, Friday the 13th 2. Everything. No, no, night, night, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Uh, it is super gay. It is, uh, it's, it's this teenager who is confused about his feelings. There's a gym coach who hangs out at leather bars and whips students with belts. No. Okay, I know that you two are sitting here staring at me, a man of whatever the opposite of steel is, a, a man who Butter. walks terrified through life, okay? Mm-hmm. But I presume that some of our listeners love being scared at the movies. If you were going to recommend one golden strength super scare movie, which is a well-known category. <laughs> it's on IMDb, I think, yeah. What would it be? And I'm going to start with Alonso because I think this question is going to be harder for Alonso. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, this is, I think we'll, we'll let April wrap this baby up. Um, hmm. I'm trying to think of like the times I've been most afraid in a movie theater. I mean, Aliens was one of them, but you know, I think again, that's another movie that's been borrowed from so much that you've you've definitely seen it at this point. There's also um, that also falls into the category of movies I should not have seen when I was eleven. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Uh, but I'm going to go with, and this is a controversial choice because this is not a director that I generally like, Zack Snyder's remake of Dawn of the Dead. That oh. movie made me sweat a lot. Really? Yeah. The tension mounts in a way that I just, I literally remember sitting in an air-conditioned theater and just sweating. I was so nervous and uncomfortable and, uh, get out of the thing. So that's my vote. April, uh, you're going to have to pick a different Zack Snyder movie. <laughs> <laughs> no! <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know how to narrow it down. I do have to say that um, probably The Descent um, screwed me up the most um, because I have a problem with claustrophobic stories where you can't see what's in the dark and you have all of these women who are spelunking and they are in this kind of dark cave area and you know one of them gets hurt and it's not an easy thing to get back up to the surface and so they're kind of trapped but then at the same time there might be something down there with them and i i think that the direction and cinematography of that it really chilled me it scared the excrement out of me because it is there's there's so much darkness and there's something about the things that you cannot see that scare me more than mm. you know the monsters or the blood that's what really gets me dead animals hundreds of them this is not good guys Can we get out of here which way What do you mean you don't know? There's no breeze. It could be any one of these tunnels. Take your pick. Hello! I shouldn't watch Man on Wire, right? That would be scary. Because... <laughs> He's so high up there, he could fall, right? Well, it, it's not as scary as the walk is because you know he didn't take the camera with him on the on the on the wire. But Zemeckis fakes that so well that it's just like, ah. I'm afraid watching the biplane movie that they show at Hearst Castle because I'm so afraid of heights. <laughs> this is this is a brand new dimension to you that I did not foresee. I know I present like a real macho man. <laughs> You may have just been thinking of Kai Rizdal. Oh, oh God. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Well, that's a man. Well, April Alonso, thank you so much for uh, giving us this worthwhile guide to the world of Halloween film on Bullseye. Happy Halloween. Thank you. Film critics April Wolf and Alonso Duralde from the brand new podcast, Who Shot It? comes out every week. You can hear April and Alonso talking with the show's host, the very funny Ricky Carmona. That show, Who Shot It's really a blast. Open up your podcasting app right now and subscribe. 
You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our very special Halloween episode is nearing its grim conclusion. But first, a recommendation from me, your host. It's called The Outshot. When Jay Hawkins wrote the song in 1955, he thought he was writing a blues ballad. I mean, a bit of a belter, but pretty straightforward. I mean, the guitar solo in that 1955 recording, it's borderline jazzy. By the time Jay Hawkins cut I Put a Spell on You the second time, in 1956, it was a whole new thing. He was going to lay it down straight again. The plan was he would see if it would hit on a bigger label he'd signed to, OK Records. But the producer brought in some food. He brought in a case of wine, Italian-Swiss colony Muscatel, specifically. And everybody got so hammered that Hawkins didn't even remember making the record that ended up defining his career. I put a spell on you. Because of mine. Stop the things you do. When Screamin' Jay Hawkins performed, he'd step out of a coffin dressed like a Halloween version of a voodoo priest. I mean, a loopy, stereotypical witch doctor pastiche, condemned by the NAACP at the time. It was all delivered with tongue-in-cheek, but also with enough gravitas and oomph that Jay kind of pulled the whole thing off. I mean, with that big, powerful voice he had. His hero was Paul Robeson. You couldn't really think that it was just a novelty song. It's a remarkable trick to imbue what was basically a culturally problematic joke with genuine power and menace. And it's the contrast between light and dark, the chiaroscuro, that makes it work. And the result of all that is one of the best singles of the 20th century. In the 60 years since that song came out, everyone on earth has covered it. I mean, the dynamics between that seductive buildup and the booming chorus are just irresistible to singers. Van Morrison, Annie Lennox, Bette Midler, Buddy Guy. But there is only one version that's better than the original. Hawkins imagined I Put a Spell on You as a straight blues ballad. That's the reading Nina Simone gave it. There isn't even a little bit of wink in her voice, though there are some strings on the intro. I put a spell on you. Cause you're mine. You better stop the things you do. I can't think of another singer besides Nina Simone who could sell the totality of this song while doing it so straight. I mean, there are singers who could sing it seductively. There are ones who could get silly, like Screamin' Jay. But Nina isn't just cooing or even belting. The juice in her version comes from the intensity of her sincerity. There's hurt, there's power, control, 
abandoned. Nina Simone felt deeply, and you could hear it in her singing. Coming from a black woman in 1965, this novelty song, goofy hit record, becomes something much more. Nina manages to frame her powerlessness as power, her fear as a demand. And with all due respect to the great Screamin' Jay Hawkins, that's something only Nina Simone could do. That's my outshot. You hear me? I put a spell on you. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. A spooky haze has descended over the city, presumably from the many wildfires here in California. Our producer, birdwatching enthusiast Kevin Ferguson, says that a murder of crows have descended on the park, perhaps in some sort of sick seasonal celebration. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Coffin Ferguson, with help from Christian Bones, the TV show, Dwayne Yes, and Case Ferratu O'Brien. Our production fellow here at MaximumFun.org is Khalid Malim. Our senior producer is Gora Swisher. Special thanks this week to Woody Battaglia and Rob Carmichael for their help. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries Records. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. You'll get sneak peeks of upcoming interviews, video shareable versions of all of our interviews as they go up on the Internet, and lots of culture news you can use to be cultured, I guess. That's about it. Remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 